Welcome to the second of four episodes on American Deaf History. These episodes were part of a larger project I started years ago, but decided to release them now. These are not true crime, and they are not deep dives, but rather a four-part overview of the history of sign language and deaf education in the United States. If you are interested in a true crime case that involves these issues, please listen to the Darlene Vandergeesen episode, which is what inspired me to dust these off. We can express ourselves just as well with eyes and hands and smiles and lips. Our most attractive discourse is found on the tips of our fingers, and our language, rich and secret beauty, that you poor speaking people will never understand. Ferdinand Bertier Welcome to episode two. Today we're going to talk about deaf education and how it was established in the United States. Education of deaf people throughout the world and throughout time has been at times largely ignored and at other times hotly debated. One thread that has been consistent from the ancient world until now is a line being drawn between those who were born deaf or lost their hearing as infants, known as pre-lingually deaf, and those who lost their hearing later in life, the post-lingually deaf. At times, different rights were bestowed on them, and a different understanding of their ability to reason and learn was applied. As we covered in episode one, it was often believed that the pre-lingually deaf were unreachable and unteachable, that speech and hearing were inherent to intelligence. In the 5th century BC, Greek philosopher Socrates wrote what is believed to be the first written acknowledgement of sign language use among the deaf community. He wrote in a letter, quote, Suppose that we have no voice or tongue and wanted to indicate object to one another. Should we not, like the deaf and dumb, make signs with the hands, head, and the rest of the body? End quote. This quote is interesting because it also points out that sign language has never been only movements of the hands, but that it incorporates the head and the body. It's actually even more fine-tuned than just this. Non-manual markers such as the shape of the mouth, known as a mouth morpheme, and the position of the eyebrows convey some of the message and a lot of the grammar. The recognition of Socrates that deaf people did use a means of communication does not mean that there was a common belief that a deaf person could reason as well as a hearing person. Sign was seen as a form of communication, but hardly equal to that of speech. This belief persisted through the centuries. But to understand deaf education in America, we do not need to go back quite as far as Socrates but we do have to go back to 16th century Europe. Royalty and nobles were expected to marry within their class, and this led to a lot of marriages between cousins. Over the course of generations, it led to significantly high rates of recessive conditions. The Habsburg family, which ruled over many countries, including Spain, is likely the most well-known example. 
between 1516 and 1700, so we are talking a 175-year period, over 80% of the marriages within the Spanish branch of the Habsburgs were between close blood relatives. This intermarrying led to higher-than-average rates of hereditary deafness, particularly in Spain. While deaf children born to poor parents were not given any access to society through language or education, the deaf children in royal families were educated privately. There were no formal deaf schools, only tutors, though some deaf children were sent to monasteries and convents. Don Pedro Ponce de Leon was a Spanish monk who took on the education of deaf students in the mid-1500s. He had a focus on teaching reading, writing, and speech. This went beyond being a private tutor as he taught groups of students, and he is considered one of the first educators of deaf children. Interest in deaf education grew as successes were being more widely reported. In 1644, a book on fingerspelling was written by an Englishman named Dr. John Bulwer, and the handshapes are still used in British Sign Language today. Deaf education in Europe spread after this point. The early focus was on teaching communication. Often this meant speech and writing. Lip reading was not commonly taught at this point, but it would be later on. Occasionally, fingerspelling and signs were used only until the student was capable of speech. This method of deaf education is called the oral method. As private tutors developed methods for teaching deaf students, more schools opened using these teaching philosophies and processes. For instance, in 1760, a Scottish man named Thomas Braidwood began to teach a deaf 10-year-old boy named Charles Sheriff. He was initially hired by Charles's wealthy father to teach Charles how to write. He succeeded in teaching Charles not just to write, but how to read and speak as well. He was then inspired to share his teaching methods and opened Braidwood Academy, a tuition-based school for deaf students, the first of its kind in Britain. He based it on the methods he used to teach Charles Sheriff. Braidwood would actually take a proprietary stance over his teaching methods and only taught them to others if they paid for it. But we did learn later that this method involved using sign language until the student learned to speak. It wasn't a purely oral method in the sense that it did not banish the use of sign language. And in fact, Braidwood had a huge hand in the development of British Sign Language. But the focus and the goal was to eventually drop signing in favor of speech. This oral method, a focus on teaching articulation, was popular throughout Europe, though the manner of teaching speech was secretive in many cases. Like Braidwood, these teachers and tutors took a proprietary view of their educational methods. While successes were bragged about, the method of achieving that success was guarded unless you paid to train at the school. So when I say the oral method, I mean only that they focused on speech over sign language. It doesn't give us any insights into the actual methods used in the various schools. 
Sign language at this point, like I said, was looked on as a lesser form of communication and certainly not equal to spoken language. The belief was that deaf students, no matter how intelligent they were, could not reach their potential or participate in society without learning speech. It could be argued that this was an improvement from previous beliefs that deaf people were unable to reason or to be educated at all. But it was a small improvement since any access to this education was reserved only for those who could afford it. In the United States, though, things were a little different. There was a lot of interest in sign language and what is called the manual method, that is, education through sign language. Early publications on deaf education in America reflect that there was an elevation of the manual method over the oral method. However, there was no school for deaf students in the United States. Most deaf children, whose parents could afford it, sent them to England to attend Braidwood or a similar school. This was not because the parents particularly preferred the oral method of education, but it was the option they had to have their children learn to read and write in English. That started to change when, in the early 19th century, a Colonel William Bowling of Virginia was trying to decide what to do about the education of his two deaf children. He did not want to send them to England. His siblings had been sent to Braidwood, and he thought their method was a success. He was impressed with how well his brother came home able to speak. That said, Colonel Bowling knew the tuition was very high, and his father had even ended up in a long legal battle over tuition debts with Braidwood. Bowling also didn't want his family split apart like he experienced when his deaf siblings were sent to England, while the rest of the hearing family stayed in Virginia. That wasn't what he wanted for his own children. In 1812, Bowling learned that the grandson of Thomas Braidwood, John Braidwood, had immigrated to America. John had headed up a school in England for two years prior to leaving abruptly, possibly fired due to alcohol abuse. Of course, Bowling didn't know that, and both Colonel Bowling and another man, Dr. Mason Cogswell of Hartford, Connecticut, both wrote to John Braidwood separately. The men had been interested in establishing a deaf school for their children without having to send them overseas, and they were both interested in having John Braidwood, who was already trained in the Braidwood method, run their school. John Braidwood opted to travel to Virginia to meet with Colonel Bowling to discuss this. More than discussing the school, Braidwood accepted a $600 advance on the tuition for Bowling's children so that he could get the school off the ground. In today's money, we are talking between $13,000 and $15,000. Accepting this money, Braidwood went north and first announced his school for the deaf in Philadelphia. This school never happened. He then announced that the school would be in Baltimore and even began advertising for it. Bowling saw the advertisement for the school and made preparations to send his son there. After all, he had already paid $600 for tuition to the school, which was a considerable sum. But Bowling hadn't actually heard directly from Braidwood 
until the fall of 1812, when Braidwood found himself in jail in New York City due to debts. He claimed the debts were not his, but those of a friend who had rented a carriage and then crashed it. Braidwood promised Bowling that he would travel to the Bowling plantation called Cobbs to work as a private tutor for the children if Bowling would bail him out. Colonel Bowling agreed to this, even though it meant borrowing money to pay the bail, since he had already spent much of his money on this tuition for a school that didn't exist. Braidwood arrived at Cobb's plantation to tutor the Bowling children, both the deaf children and the hearing. After a little more than a year, Braidwood finally opened the first school for the deaf in the United States, the Cobb's School and enrolled five students. The school was to be run using the Braidwood method, focusing on teaching speech. The school opened in 1815, and then it closed in 1816, just a year and a half later. Braidwood's issues with gambling and alcohol forced him to leave, and Colonel Bowling could no longer afford to keep the school open himself. So the first school for the deaf in America was a flash in the pan. But in the background of all of this, another school was emerging, and this school would change the course of deaf education and deaf culture in America for generations. This was the Hartford School for the Deaf, which we briefly discussed in episode one. To understand how the school was formed, we have to go back to Europe again. While the oral method was becoming the preferred educational method in much of Europe, there was a priest in France named Charles-Michel de la Paix, and he had a different idea. He observed two deaf sisters communicate with each other in sign, very likely a family sign system that they created themselves. He became intrigued by this and began to learn what he could about deaf education. In 1760, he established his school, which is now called, translated to English, the National Institute of Deaf Youth in Paris. Le Pay pulled away from the trends in deaf education at the time in many ways. First, he did not keep his methods secret. Second, the school he established was completely free. In fact, it was the first free national school for the deaf in the world. Not only did he have no financial motivation to keep his methods secret, he also had no personal motivations. His goal was salvation through education. The other thing Lepe did to buck the trend was that he taught in sign language. Not only did he use sign language, but he used the sign language his students were already using the combination of their family and community signs. He added to these signs, and they were mostly signs that fit into French grammatical rules. But this is the first documented instance of a hearing teacher of deaf students learning from those students the best way to communicate with them. This isn't to say that Lepe was not interested in speech or didn't believe there was a value in teaching deaf people how to speak. 
Lepe's view was that it wasn't an effective use of time in a group setting. Unlike other schools, his school did not have the resources to allocate to individual instruction, and that was needed to teach speech. He figured it would take him 10 hours a day to give his students just 10 minutes of individual speech training a day. That would leave him time to teach nothing else. And Lepe prioritized reading and writing over speech. Speech only teaches a deaf person how to speak. Writing gave them access to a two-way communication with the hearing world, and reading, of course, opens up so much more than even that. After Lepe's death, Abbey Roque Ambois Sicard took over in 1790. Sicard perhaps one-upped La Paix in his, for the time, radical approach to deaf education. Sicard hired deaf teachers. Jean Massou became the first deaf teacher at the Institute. In 1792, Sicard was then caught up in the French Revolution. As his appointment as head of the school was a royal appointment by the king, Sicard was arrested, he escaped, he hid, he was banished, and then he was eventually allowed back into the country in 1797. The school had still run during his five-year absence. It was during the time of Sicard's banishment that a 12-year-old named Laurent Clare was enrolled in the school. Those who know about deaf education in America can now see how this long walk through France connects us to the United States through Laurent Clare. Laurent Clare was born in 1785 in a small village on the edge of Lyon, where his father was mayor. When he was about one and a half years old, he fell off of a chair and into a fire. He received a burn to his right cheek, which would leave him with a lifelong scar. When his family learned he was deaf a few years later, they attributed his deafness to this fall, though it is possible he was born deaf. It is not uncommon for parents to miss the signs of deafness until their child is older. At the age of seven, Laurent Clare's mother took him to have liquid injected into his ears as a possible cure. Obviously, it didn't work, and at the age of 12, his uncle persuaded the family to stop seeking a cure and enroll Laurent Clare in the Institute. He was taught by Jean Massou, who was keeping the school going during Sicard's forced absence. Eventually, Clare became a teacher at the Institute himself. By 1815, Napoleon had been defeated and exiled, and the Institute again received the favor of the king when King Louis XVIII returned from exile himself. But then Napoleon escaped. He raised an army, and he began to march towards Paris. This wasn't Sicard's first rodeo. He had already seen what happened to people close to the king during an upheaval like this. He was not interested in an encore. Sicard, along with Jean Massou and Laurent Clare, all left France for England. And we are going to leave these three educators in England for a minute and go back to a name I mentioned before. When John Braidwood immigrated to the U.S., there were two fathers interested in helping him start a school. He went with Colonel Bowling in Virginia, 
but the other was Dr. Mason Cogswell of Hartford, Connecticut, and I promise this will all connect. Dr. Cogswell's daughter, Alice, had contracted meningitis as a toddler and lost her hearing. Cogswell wanted a school in New England for deaf children and took his own census to show that there was a need. He counted 84 deaf people in Connecticut alone. This did not count any of the surrounding states or the known deaf communities on Martha's Vineyard or in New Hampshire and Maine. Cogswell had found a placement for Alice in a small private girls' school, though the teacher had no experience teaching deaf students. While Alice was in that school, she used home signs and fingerspelling to communicate. At that time, the fingerspelling used was two-handed and similar to British Sign Language. It was brought to the United States by the students who had been sent to Braidwood in England. Dr. Cogswell had a neighbor, a man named Thomas Hopkins Gallaudet. He was the oldest of 12 children. Gallaudet had gone away to school at the age of 14, so he didn't meet Alice Cogswell until he returned home in the summer of 1813, and he watched his younger siblings play with the then nine-year-old. Though not a teacher, he was actually a minister, Gallaudet was interested in Alice's capacity to learn, and he taught her how to write her name and a few other words. Alice's father gave him a book on deaf education so that he could learn more, and the book, of course, was written by Sicard. Gallaudet then taught himself the manual alphabet from the book and began teaching Alice more using fingerspelling. With an eager teacher, Dr. Cogswell's dream of opening a school for deaf students in New England was starting to take shape, except that Thomas Gallaudet, frankly, didn't know what he was doing. So Cogswell raised the money necessary to fund a trip for Gallaudet to go to Europe to study deaf education. On June 25, 1815, Thomas Gallaudet arrived in England, and his first visit was to Braidwood. And of course, they would only teach him their methods for a price. Gallaudet tried to barter with them, and they finally offered to train him for free if he would work as a handwriting teacher in the meantime. But they wanted him to promise to stay for three years to fully learn the method, and that timetable did not fit with the desire to start a school back in Connecticut, so he declined. But Gallaudet heard about an upcoming demonstration on deaf education occurring in London. Rather than the oral method of Braidwood, this would show the manual education method used in the French school. It was being taught by none other than Abby Sicard, Jean Massou, and Laurent Clare. As they were in England on their self-imposed exile from Paris at the time. They used their time in England to advocate for sign language and the manual method of education, showing that not only were Masu and Claire clearly well-educated, they were also able to teach. One popular demonstration they would do was to have Claire read the newspaper and sign what he was reading. Masu would then write what Claire was signing onto a chalkboard for the audience to see. They would do this in French, of course, as neither of them knew English at the time, but the point of this was to demonstrate that a deaf person could read the written word 
and then use sign language to communicate the contents so clearly that another deaf person could understand it in full context and reproduce it in writing. The connection between reading sign language and written language helped people understand that French sign language had the same ability as spoken French to communicate. Sign language was not, as many believed, an inferior pantomime. Thomas Gallaudet was impressed by this display, and Sicard invited him to the National Institute in Paris to train in the manual method of education. And unlike the other schools, this would be without charge and without contract. Gallaudet was still not entirely sold on the manual method at this point. He saw the positive results from this educational model, but in just one display of it. He still held the belief that there was value in teaching deaf students to speak. Gallaudet started thinking a combined method that included sign and speech might be the best way to go. He wrote to Dr. Cogswell, quote, I should wish, and I yet hope, to combine the peculiar advantages of both the French and the English modes of instruction, for there are considerable differences between them, end quote. Gallaudet decided to take Sicard up on his offer to go to the National Institute, but the time he was looking to travel was at the end of Napoleon's 100-day hold of Paris, and it just was not safe. Instead, he went to Scotland and back to the original Braidwood School. Again, he was not given instruction or even an overview of their methods from the headmaster there because he was unable to commit to teaching there and he did not have the funds to pay. But this trip to Scotland was not for nothing. Gallaudet met with a Scottish philosopher and proponent of the manual method named Dugold Stewart. Stewart pushed Gallaudet to consider this purely manual method of education and to let go of the idea of combining the methods. His argument for the manual method was in line with Gallaudet's own values. Gallaudet wanted to teach deaf students because he believed them equal in ability to learn and reason as the hearing. Stewart's view of oralism was that it taught students to speak more like how we teach parrots to talk whereas teaching through sign language was designed to teach reason and morals. Choosing at this point to focus on the manual method, Gallaudet traveled to France in March of 1816. The delays had chipped away at the funding for this trip, and he only had two months at the Institute to learn as much as he could. But it wasn't nearly enough time for him to learn French sign language, let alone the method of education. So he asked if Laurent Clare would travel back to the United States with him and help him start a school that would implement the manual method. With Clare going to the United States, Gallaudet could continue to learn from someone who knew the method well, all while getting his own school off the ground. At the age of 30, Clare had spent more than half of his life immersed in the French school, since he had started as a student at the age of 12. Claire's time working in America was meant to be three years, just the time it would take to get everyone trained. Instead, Claire stayed for the remainder of his life. Gallaudet and Claire set sail for America in June of 1816. It would take 52 days aboard the Mary Augusta before they reached port in New York. During this journey, Claire taught Gallaudet sign language and Gallaudet taught Claire English. 
After arriving, they began the work of both raising money for the school and getting legislative approval. This would happen rapidly. It took about five months to raise the $17,000 they needed, and the school was opened two months after that. The money was raised in part by showing the success of the teaching method by having Claire give talks in sign language with Gallaudet interpreting them. But in appeals to donors, Gallaudet would also point out that schools were offered for hearing children using public funds. But for the parents of deaf children, that education could only be accessed if they could fund it privately. Gallaudet said it wasn't a matter of charity or kindness to fund a school for deaf students. It was a matter of justice and fairness. And so on April 15, 1817, Laurent Clare and Thomas Gallaudet opened America's first successful school for deaf children in a large rented home in Hartford, Connecticut. Known initially as the Connecticut Asylum for the Education and Instruction of Deaf and Dumb Persons, it was renamed the American School for the Deaf in 1885. Seven students enrolled on opening day, the first being Alice Cogswell. Gallaudet and Claire were able to start this school together because of their common vision for a manual education, though it was not all smooth sailing between the two. In May of 1819, Claire married Eliza Boardman, a deaf woman from New York who he met when she came to the school at the age of 25. Gallaudet objected, believing that two deaf people were likely to have deaf children, and should a deaf person choose to marry, it should be to a hearing person. Here we see some nuance in the views Gallaudet held at this point. He believed that sign language was equal to that of spoken language. He believed the deaf mind was equal to the hearing mind, the deaf spirit equal to the hearing spirit. The ability to learn, to reason, to feel, all equal. But he did not see deafness as equal to hearing. Laurent Clare came from an entirely different position. He was not unhappy being deaf, and he did not wish he could hear. He said, quote, Every creature, every work of God, is admirably well made. But if anyone appears imperfect in our eyes, it does not belong to us to criticize it, end quote. Claire believed that people were who they were, and there wasn't a right or wrong way to be created. And that meant an acceptance of deafness as a variation and not something to purposely avoid. As time passed, Gallaudet watched his colleague and his students develop lives in no way different than those of hearing people. They finished school, they supported themselves, they married, they raised children, they participated in their communities. Gallaudet's views changed and he stopped opposing marriage between deaf people. As it would turn out, none of Laurent Clare's six children were deaf. Thomas Gallaudet would also marry a student of the school, Sophia Fowler, in 1821, after her graduation. Sophia was deaf since birth and also had a deaf sister. She expressed some concern that their children may be born deaf, and to show the growth Gallaudet underwent in the few years since Claire's marriage, he said he didn't care if they were. 
Laurent Claire and Thomas Gallaudet continued teaching side-by-side at the American School for years. Their teaching model had four parts initially. None of these four aspects included speech training. As Gallaudet was persuaded while still in Scotland, he let go of his plan to introduce a combined method of manual education and oral education. He focused only on manual education, like what was used at the National Institute in Paris. The first part of this method was the use of natural sign, the visual language that the students would use when conversing with each other. This was generally a combination of their similar family signs, community emerged signs, and the French sign language Claire brought to the United States. This natural sign had its own grammatical rules and structure, and it was a language distinctly separate from English. Most classes would be taught using this language. The second part was methodical sign, which is also called manually coded English. This is essentially English presented on the hands. Rather than following the grammar rules of sign language, English syntax was used. The actual signs used in manually coded English and natural sign language were mostly the same. There were a few differences. Teaching sign this way was believed to give the students an advantage when learning English. This sign is often called signed exact English, or C, today. The third part of the method was the use of the manual alphabet, also known as finger spelling. 26 letters in the English language, 26 handshapes. The manual alphabet gave students the ability to express themselves in English in a way that hearing people could easily learn. Most hearing people, even today, do not need to learn thousands of signs to communicate with a deaf person. They need to simply learn 26 handshapes and be willing to step out of their comfort zone briefly. The fourth part of the educational method was reading and writing in English. Students at the American school saw great success with both their ability to sign in their native sign, which would become American Sign Language, and to read and write in English. Eventually, the school would drop the second aspect of this method, the methodical sign language. They did this after a different school, the New York Institution, decided to stop teaching it first. They felt it was an unnecessary step between natural sign language and English, and it wasn't something we do with other English language learners. If a student speaks Japanese, we do not rearrange Japanese words into English syntax first and then teach English later. We just teach English. After the New York Institution published the success of this new approach, other deaf schools in the U.S. began dropping methodical sign as well. Laurent Clare would continue to live and work in Connecticut advocating for the deaf community until he died in 1869 at the age of 83. Thomas Gallaudet predeceased him, having died in 1851. His death did not end his influence over deaf education in America because his children continued his work. His oldest son, Thomas, became an Episcopal priest and then a teacher of deaf students in New York. One of his students, Henry Winter Sile, was the first deaf person to be ordained by the Episcopal Church. In 1852, the younger Thomas Gallaudet established St. Anne's Church for Deaf Mutes in New York City. In 1872, he helped establish a home for aged and infirm deaf people, also in New York City. 
Edward Minor Gallaudet, the youngest of Thomas Gallaudet and Sophia Fowler Gallaudet's children, eventually moved to Washington, D.C. to establish an educational institution that would be the first of its kind in the world. And in the next episode, we will continue our discussion on deaf education, covering the founding of Gallaudet University, the only university designed around the needs of deaf students. This series was researched, written, hosted, and edited by me, Charlie Worrell. The opening quotes were voiced by Lainey Hobbs, the host of True Crime Fan Club. You can find the link to the sources for the series and the transcripts in the show notes. <laughs>